All right, uh, if you didn't hear, you should probably grab a Bible. Uh, Bibles. There's uh, Bibles right there if you need one, the mustard-colored ones. What would you say, butterscotch? Okay, wheat-colored ones. <laughs> okay. All right, let's uh, we'll go ahead and get started. Glad you could all make it. I'm going to take attendance now. I'm not going to take attendance. I guess I could, but um, some people have said, "Well, what if I'm going to miss one? If you miss one, you miss one. Um, you can catch it online later." Um, so. Let's open with prayer, and then um, hopefully people will gather that we're in here with the door being open, um, and then we'll kind of go go from there, jump into it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come uh, this night, and we thank you for the day that you have given us today, and we thank you for the refreshment of the rain, and also for the blessing of the technology of air conditioning and the chance to get out of the heat, and we thank you for an opportunity to gather together and to dig into this subject matter that is your son, and we just pray that your spirit would guide us along this uh, journey, along this path that we are on as we desire to understand you uh, more fully, and in particular, your son, and what he means uh, to us, and what he has done for us and what he desires from us. So be with us tonight and over the next five weeks as we dedicate this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, welcome. Um, many of you know from the classes that I typically teach, um, at times you'll feel like you're really in the weeds. Uh, maybe tonight you'll feel like you're really in the weeds and wondering... Why am I not sitting at home uh, by my fire pit? Um, but hopefully we can kind of work through this, and I guarantee by the end um, the subject matter will seem easier. Uh, there's certainly some things that we will have to dig into that will be challenging um, vocabulary-wise. And I, if, you, if you are unsure of something I've said, as in a vocabulary um, piece, word, phrase, uh, please feel free to raise your hand and say, could you explain that slightly differently? Um, that would be very helpful. So the, the structure of this class is five weeks, as I mentioned. And so tonight we're going to look at um, some overview stuff to begin with. And then we're going to look at uh, the Jewish understanding of Messiah. So kind of an Old Testament understanding of Messiah. And then we're going to look at um, the New Testament understanding of Messiah. We're going to look at a little bit of each of the Gospels, kind of some main themes of the Gospels, and then we're going to also get into some Paul um, text. So we're going to be looking at a lot of verses, and so I may ask you to read or to chime in. Um, so that's why I asked you to get a Bible. 
If you want paper to take notes, there's papers and paper and pens um, back by the sound booth. Um, somebody had asked about books, textbooks, uh, reading list material. Um, these are the four main texts that I'm using. Um, I will print off a bibliography sheet for next week um, with kind of what I would recommend um, because some are more uh, accessible than others uh, based on the language. Um, not that they aren't all good, but like for example, I would say um, this textbook, which is called Christology <laughs> um, by O'Collins is more accessible than this textbook, which is called Christology uh, by Veli Mati Karkainen. Um, and then like this book, uh, The Meaning of Jesus, Two Visions. Um, I don't think some of you would want to read this book uh, because Borg's um, section of the book you would find so offensive you couldn't get on to N.T. Wright's portion of the book. So, um, Also, kind of a side note, um, I was meeting with somebody today and we were talking about this class and he made mention, because he's taken classes from me before, that sometimes I will say things to people and they may assume that what I say to them or challenge them with is what my position is. And that's not necessarily the case. So my uh, college advisor, Richard Mayer, um, he would push us on certain things and it drove me crazy because I never knew exactly where he stood on the issue and then it turned out to be great because rather than saying, well, I believe this because Dr. Mayer believes it. Um, so if I say something that pushes you in a particular way, don't assume that that's my position. Okay? So you can, you can go off and say, well, Eric said this, which would be true, but that might not be what Eric actually believes. Um, all right, so the five weeks, as I mentioned, tonight we're looking at um, some, some overall general um, information. We're looking at Jewish understanding of Jesus or Messiah, um, and then going through the biblical text. Next week, we're looking at the humanity and divinity um, crisis, I guess you would say, debate, disagreement um, throughout history. Obviously, early church fathers dealt with this issue, and so we'll unpack some history behind it. Um, the different creeds and the different councils and how they came about um, coming up with it and what do we do with the humanity and divinity of Christ. So then the week three, the third week, we're going to talk about atonement um, and the work of Christ. So atonement meaning what took place when Jesus died and was resurrected uh, as far as our access to salvation. So we'll talk about some different atonement theories. Um, and then kind of the overall, how would we define the work of Christ? Uh, and then week four, we're going to talk about the role of Christ as our covenant representative. Um, and that is kind of the priestly role of Christ. And then week five, um, right now I have it slated in as teaching and titles, teaching and titles of Jesus. But if something comes up and we say, gee, I'd really like to cover this. Um, that's what we'll do.
If you have questions at any time, feel free to just raise your hand. Don't wait till the end. Um, or if you have a question that you don't want to ask in front of everyone else, you can certainly email me or um, call me uh, individually. Also, people have asked if we're going to have discussion groups. We will have um, discussion clusters, which is kind of my favorite thing to do. So maybe you'll meet some new people tonight, and then next week you'll sit someplace else, and you'll meet some new people then, and you'll just meet new people and discuss things um, throughout the class. So, All right. Where do we begin, uh, and what does this look like? Well, first of all, um, one thing we have to understand is the bias that we come to this subject matter with. And N.T. Wright has a really interesting um, take in this book on understanding um, our bias. He says, we all see the world through the colored spect spectacles of our own personal histories, backgrounds, assumptions, and so on. History is precisely a matter of looking through one's own spectacles at evidence about the past, trying to reconstruct the probable course of events and the motivations of the characters involved, and defending such reconstructions against rival ones, not on the grounds of their coherence with one's own presuppositions, but on the scientific grounds of getting in the data, doing so with appropriate simplicity, and shedding light on other areas of research. So each one of us comes to this topic of Jesus with our own glasses. And if you've ever tried to look through someone else's glasses who really needs glasses, like I don't need glasses to that degree, so if you put my glasses on, you'd be like, eh. But other people that actually need glasses, and you look through their glasses, you're like, I can't, I can't make this out. Uh, so each one of us has to acknowledge that we come to this uh, topic, this subject matter of Jesus, with our own glasses, seeing things in our own particular way based on what we've experienced throughout life. In the last class that we did on cults and world religions, we had some slides of uh, like duck, duck, gray duck, for those that live in Minnesota, or duck, duck, goose, like the rest of the world. So based on where we come from, we come with our own particular bias and understanding. And so our worldview skews how we see who Jesus is. For example, when we talk about the atonement and we talk about the, the vast majority of atonement theories that exist about Jesus, they're all Western-based theories of atonement. They're based on the judicial system. They're based on a guilt culture well, for someone who lives in Asia, who's in a shame-based culture, like in Korea, the concept of guilt is not nearly as powerful as the concept of shame. And so how do we understand from our perspective um, things about Jesus, and then how do we allow people from other contexts to inform who Jesus is? Kind of looking at one side of a multifaceted object. We're seeing what we see from our perspective, but that doesn't mean there isn't other perspectives that allow us to see things more fully. So, in addition, part of what we need to be aware of is we are imposing meaning oftentimes about who Jesus is from the present. So we look at the totality of history and we say, well, of course Jesus is this. 
So, for example, we look back tonight, we'll look back at some Old Testament passages, and we'll say, how did the Jews not get it? They had all this prophecy, and clearly it was pointing to Jesus. Well, that's easy for us to say, because we are where we are now, and we have the information that we have today. And so, part of understanding who Jesus is, and especially who Jesus was to the people when he first came to earth, we have to understand that we can't divorce ourselves from the knowledge that we have today, but we can acknowledge the, the position that I sit in today in 2018 affects how I view previous history. So we have to be careful not to impose meaning on who Jesus is because of where we are today if that supersedes the truth of who Jesus actually was. Questions about that? Some of you are already like, I gotta go to the bathroom and then I'm gonna leave. <laughs> I thought we were gonna talk about Jesus. We are. <laughs> Anyone other than Chuck have a question? <laughs> Okay, we are go definitely going to address that question. Why did Jesus enter into the context that he did? Um, and there certainly is some great uh, speculation on why he did that. I think part of it was timing. Um, you know, B.C. was kind of coming to an end, and so he felt like he would come at the right time. Just fresh start, you know. Like, why do we start New Year's resolutions on January 1st? Like he said, I'm just going to come right here, B.C., we're getting down to one, here I come. <laughs> so the other thing is we have to look at how do we know Jesus. And one of the authors talks about this concept of, you know, obviously we're in this room where we have uh, windows, but if, let's say we were in an interior room and we couldn't see outside, but we could hear rain on the roof. And we could say with great certainty, or with a fair amount of certainty, I believe that it's raining outside. Or we could actually go outside and experience the drenching of the rain. And that's in, in hopes of what we're going to do throughout this kind of class and throughout our spiritual journeys is we can come to great knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is from an intellectual perspective. But the point of this, the point of this five weeks, this eight hours, is that we would immerse ourselves in who Jesus is and experience that. And so I want to warn us against making this an intellectual pursuit. So the first thing we need to talk about is this idea of sources. Because how, do we, how are we to know who Jesus is? Well, Jesus didn't write any books. He doesn't have his own autobiography. And so what are the sources that we use to understand who Jesus is? And what I want us to hopefully train our brains and our vocabulary to do is when we talk about Jesus, we say Jesus, because that is his name, versus Christ which means Messiah, or the Messiah, which we'll talk about um, tonight. 
So there's this idea of all of the, the multitude of sources that exist in our lives, and one of them is history. And for the vast majority of time, history is often used as a weapon against faith. So the search for the historical Jesus, which has came about really post-Enlightenment, um, people say, well, the more that we find out about who Jesus is, the more it's going to erode at our faith. And so people see history as a weapon against faith. And the other side of that coin is people use faith as an escape from history. So we talk about you know, faith or religion being the opiate of the masses. And so faith is not an escape from history. So in this pursuit of trying to understand who Jesus is, we're not allowing history to diminish our faith, and we're not allowing our faith to, in essence, disregard history. Um, we're bringing the two of them together. And one of the authors talks about this, this two-stage system, and he says that faith divorced from history is like living in the attic, and history divorced from faith is like living in the dungeon. So history without faith is living in the dungeon, the darkness of just the facts. And faith without history is like living kind of in the clouds. And the question becomes, uh, is Jesus, approaching Jesus, is like approaching a zebra? And we'll talk about this more next week. Is it black with white stripes or white with black stripes? Is Jesus human or is he divine? Is he more human than divine or is he more divine than human? And so as we approach understanding Jesus, do we come from this position of above? This is a key Christological concept. A lot of people want to start with the divinity of Jesus, start from above. And once I can understand the divinity of Jesus, then we'll trickle down and understand the humanity of Jesus, and other people say, well, let's start from the bottom, from the, the earthly humanity of Jesus, and go up, and the answer is both. So as we look at understanding who Jesus is, yes, at times we'll be looking at the two kind of compartments, but it's not as if we are separating them from one another. So when we look at the sources, especially of the New Testament, we have to understand a few things about the Gospels, because let's start in the middle. So if you're familiar with who Karl Barth is and many theologians, they, they try and understand time through the cross. So in essence, the cross of Christ is the center of time, and we look at everything moving backwards in time to creation or forwards in time, um, to the eschaton or to the end through the lens of who Jesus was and through the cross. We look at it through Christ-colored spectacles. And so when we look at the sources of the Gospels, because that's often the first place we want to go, we have to understand that the, the layout of the New Testament is not chronological in the sense that these books were written first. But when we look at the Gospels, Mark comes first. Mark was written first. 
And then Matthew and Luke came about um, basically about the same time. And then there's this outlier, Q, and then there's John who's like floating someplace else because he is different. So when we look at the, the sources of these, these books and understanding who Jesus is, we have to say that, okay, Mark is probably the primary source for understanding the life and ministry of Jesus. And then Matthew and Luke more than likely played off of their understanding of Mark and this Q person text, which the Q scripture, you say, why isn't it in our um, canon? Because it wasn't really discovered or didn't really become a big thing until about the 19th century. Um, and it's a group of sayings or teachings of Jesus. So if you ever hear um, anything about Q, it's the teachings of Jesus. And so when we look at these sources, we have to look at them in the understanding of Mark is probably primary source number one for understanding the history of Jesus. And we'll unpack each one of the Gospels a little bit later. The Gospel of Peter. Um, well, if I wrote a book for you, <laughs> it's kind of like the whole editor thing. You know, I, you look at a book and you're like, this person didn't write anything. They just edited the thing. Why is their name on the book? So why do we continue to call it Mark? This is a classic example of canonical history. And, you know, it's, it's very um, conceited of us to sit today and say, well, we know now that Mark didn't actually write it, and so we should rename it. Or we could just keep it the same and acknowledge the history that is behind his relationship with the gospel. So we're going to unpack kind of the key themes of each of these four um, gospels tonight. But just as far as um, source timeline, uh, we want to be aware of, of those things. So the, the biggest thing that I think we oftentimes forget is uh, that Jesus was a Jew. It's kind of like writing, Jesus loves you on the board. It's like, well, duh. Well, not duh. Because for most of us, we don't think of Jesus as a Jew. We think of Jesus as a Christian. Jesus was first and foremost a Jew, born into a Jewish context, with Jewish parents, raised in the Jewish tradition, and who tried to uphold his Jewish faith throughout his life. Now, 
we had talked a little bit about this. Why did Jesus enter into the world when he did? Well, if you are familiar with the history of the Jewish people, things were not going well for the Jews towards the, before Jesus shows up. And in about 63, so 63 uh, BCE, the Roman Empire uh, was really starting to take over. And the Jews, yes, they'd come back from exile and all of these things, but things were not going well for them. And they were experiencing this pressure from the Romans and the boom of city life was starting to take place and the peasants were moving out of the farms and out of the country into the cities and they were being controlled by the Romans and the Hellenistic culture um, was running rampant. And so when we look at Paul's writings, you know, he's writing into a lot of this Hellenistic influence and so Jesus is entering into, in essence, crisis mode for the Jewish people. And if you're familiar with Second Temple Judaism or the, the history of the Jews, they were, um, they were not in a good place. And so he, here comes Jesus into this place to rescue his people. So why did he come in when he came in? Because everything was ripe in the world for him to have the impact that he did. You know, many people conjecture that because, you know, God was in essence waiting for the Romans to take over because the Romans had all of this technology and the roads and all of these things, and sure, um, but more than likely, he comes in when he does because his people needed him at that moment in history. And that's why it's an even bigger deal that his people, for the most part, um, missed it. So one of the biggest things within the Jewish tradition is the concept of Messiah. And when we think of Messiah, it's a Hebrew um, idea, and so when we go to the Greek world, uh, we translate that to Christ. And Christ appears 500 plus times in the New Testament. So the term or the word Christos, Christ, appears over 500 times in the New Testament. Kind of important because Jesus is the Messiah that has been promised to the Jewish people, and again, somehow it gets missed. So when we look at Jewish history and when we look at the Old Testament, there's a number of factors that we want to be aware of in how the Jewish people understood who the Messiah was. And when we look at Jesus, there's really this um, Trinitarian office holding that Jesus has. And it's king, prophet, and priest. So Jesus' role when he enters the scene is the fulfillment of the king piece of the Jewish tradition, the prophet and the uh, priestly role 
that the Jews were waiting for. So if we look at um, Ezekiel chapter 34, so we're going to be looking at a lot of verses. So Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 and 24, we start to see some of these allusions to this person that the Jews are waiting for. Now, again, we, we'll read this text and we'll say, well, duh, Jesus said this exact same thing. How did they miss it? But again, they were looking for something slightly different. It's kind of like this. Last Thursday night, Nikki and I were in the city celebrating our anniversary, and we're walking to this restaurant that we're going to go eat at, and this six, these six people, three couples, dressed up very nice. They're talking as we walk by them, and they're looking for the same restaurant we are. And we're like, it's right there. <laughs> well, they said we, we felt like we walked too far. It's like, it's right there. You just walked past it. And they're like, well, how did you know? Well, because we know what we're looking for. And my wife's been there before. <laughs> no sign on the, you know, it's not like they had a big sign. So if you didn't know what you're looking for, you missed it. So Ezekiel uh, 34, verses 23 and 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord I have spoken. And then if we flip over to chapter 37, verses 24 and 25. Again, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell forever and David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Well, we know that David wasn't a prince, he was a king. And so we start seeing these Jewish people being ingrained with this idea of shepherd, and then Jesus comes along in John and says what? Well, they didn't good shepherd. And we stand here today and say, well, they were idiots. Well, they didn't know quite exactly what they were looking for. So let's flip over to Zechariah. I thought about marking all these passages, and then I was like, I'm, I'm going to have so many pieces of paper, I'm not even going to be able to find them. Uh, Zechariah is right before Malachi. Verse 9 of chapter 9, getting into the priest or the kingly position. Verse 9 and 10 of chapter 9. Rejoice, uh, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. 
So again, we start seeing these people are like aware of this concept of who Jesus is going to be. But again, it didn't quite seem to click. So let's look at 13.7 of Zechariah. <clears throat> Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. So we see, again, Jesus and this allusion to who Jesus will be, but somehow it gets missed. So it's not that the, Is the Israelites, the Jews, were looking for a Messiah. But based on where they were at, situationally, their understanding of what they were going to be getting did not match up with who Jesus was when he showed up. So again, let's look at First um, Samuel chapter uh, 9. And we see this concept of the anointing of the king. And 1 Samuel 9 and 10, Saul is chosen as king, and he is anointed as king in chapter 10. Starting in verse, ten, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. So throughout the history of the people of Israel... God provides them these great anointed kings. And what do these kings do? They rule. <laughs> I mean, that's what a king does. He rules over a land. And when you look at the line of kings, the good kings, because after, um, you know, once we start getting into the bad kings, it never really turns around again. But if your whole life and your whole history is God providing you with these powerful kings and you're told the Messiah will be a king and Jesus shows up, you're like, yeah, this isn't what we're looking for. We're looking for the king that's going to help us get out from underneath this Roman rule. Let's look at John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6. And I suppose that, that guy walked in. Somebody just was out in that gathering space. Oh, there he is. All right, cool. <laughs> I was just going to make sure that you weren't lost. Um, John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This indeed, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. 
So we see this moment in John where everything is almost lining up and the people understand, all right, this guy, this Jesus, is exactly what we've been waiting for, and he's supposed to be king, so we want him to be king. And Jesus is like, whoop, stop. And so certainly there was some confusion because they're expecting one thing, and it's not that they were wrong. For their whole life, for their whole history, for the whole Old Testament, they are promised a prophet and a king. And in their minds, what a prophet and a king is, is David. It's Elijah. It's all of these things. And Jesus doesn't seem to fit that bill. And so how did they miss it? Let's look at Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. At first, I thought we could do this like old school sword drill, and then I would throw pieces of candy to who got there first. But I figured that might take too long. Isaiah uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them was light shown. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They have rejoiced before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of, of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot uh, the of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood and we burned as fuel for the fire for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace of the increase of his government and and of peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, if you're a good Jew and you know Isaiah chapter 9 and Jesus shows up, you say, this guy does not fit. This guy does not fit the bill. And so we, again, stand here today and we're like, how did they miss it? It's because they didn't fully understand what they were looking for. And these prophecies, you know, in this particular prophecy in Isaiah, people would have known this text very well. And they would have looked at Jesus and looked at this prophecy and said, yeah, these two, they're not the same. And so we have to understand, again, the Jewish context to which Jesus enters into and the fact that he was a Jew. Let's look at Micah chapter uh, 5. Uh, verses 2 through 6. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time 
when she who is in labor has given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great at the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Uh, Okay, again, you, you say, we get the point. But they were not living in peace. So Jesus shows up, and it's not like these people are living in peace. And even after Jesus is crucified and is resurrected and leaves, ascends back to heaven, peace did not exist. In fact, for the Jews, it got way worse. So, hopefully, through all of these passages, we kind of start to see the Old Testament understanding of a Messiah didn't fit with Jesus from their perspective. What they were looking for, Jesus didn't match up. And yeah, Jesus said all of these things, so maybe there would have been some correlation, but not necessarily the case. If we look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, we're just covering the waterfront tonight. Yeah. Were the Jews set up? Um, I don't think they were set up to fail. I think they had all the pieces in place. They just didn't know how to put the pieces together. And they were human beings. You know, I can get a box of furniture from Ikea. Lord, help me. And I can even have the instructions. But if I don't look at the instructions and understand the instructions, I can't put the thing together. I could maybe get it close. But I think for the Jewish people, they, they were in such a bad way that they couldn't... What they wanted in a Messiah was a very temporal situation. So Jesus came, didn't exactly fit what they were looking for, but was more than, and they were unwilling to accept it. So were they set up? I don't know if they were set up. That's like saying, were, the, were they set up when they went in and saw, you know, they're at the promised land, there's 10 guys, there's 12 spies, and the 10 go in, and they, all 12 see the same thing. Were they set up to spend, you know, 40 years in the desert? No, they were 12 human beings that went in and underestimated who God was. The Jewish people, when Jesus shows up, couldn't get out of their own way, just like the 10 spies couldn't get out of their own way and believe that God could be doing it differently. I mean, when we look at the teaching of Jesus, he hits all the points, they hear what he says, they can even start to make the connection and they're like, yeah, but you're not what we want. What we want is a king like David, not just a king in the line of David. What we want is freedom from Roman oppression. And you're talking about this concept of salvation. 
and we want to be in control. And when you start to see, you know, especially in, you know, in the 400s, uh, when Constantine takes over and becomes a Christian, the Christians are like, woohoo, jackpot, we got the ruler and now we are in control, which is what the Jewish Jews wanted all along. They wanted to be in control. You even look at the history of the Jews and when they get a king, why does God give them a king? Because that's exactly what they wanted, but that's not what they needed. And when, when they get into the king business, yeah, sure, it goes well for a while, but that was never uh, the plan. Do you think they were set up? That's what he said. <laughs> he said, I am your king. Why didn't he give them the wisdom to understand? My name is Eric, and I do what I'm told. Right? I mean, that's the, whole, that's the whole sin game. Like, okay, I'm telling you, this isn't what you want. You know? I tell my son, don't do that with your dirt bike, and he does it anyways, and then he breaks it, and I'm like, I told you so. <laughs> the remnant... Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's the whole history of Israel is them, God saying, this is what you need, and them saying, no, it's not. This is what we need. And it's the human condition. I mean, that, how often, you know, somebody said, well, how many people are signed up for the class? And I said, oh, I don't know, about 50 or so. And then I said, you know, if one person comes to me on Sunday or meets with me next week and says, I just don't understand why I'm not growing my relationship with the Lord, I'll be like, I could tell you why. You're not doing anything. I want to know Jesus better. Come to Wednesday night. Well, actually, I'm kind of busy. Like, that is the human condition. Like, God tells us this is what you're supposed to do. Okay, God, thanks. I'm going to go do this. And it's not a Jewish problem. It's, not, uh, it's, it's a human problem. Um. Where are we at? Deuteronomy? Do good, get good? Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise you up, will raise up for you a prophet like me uh, from among you, from your brothers. Uh, it is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see his great fire any more, lest I die. And then uh, 18, uh, 18, 18, 
I will raise up from them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded him. So this role of prophet, the expectation of a future prophet, when we look at Mark chapter 6, um, verse 14, Uh, King, Herod, er, King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these mirac miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So even then, these people are like, this Jesus is a prophet like the prophet of old. And then if we look at John chapter 1, verse 21. And they asked him, Jesus, what then, are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah. Sorry, talking to John the Baptist. So this concept of prophet was very familiar to these people. And so when Jesus starts prophesying about you know the future and all of these things, they, they weren't they weren't really surprised that here comes this other prophet. They were just trying to figure out which category he fits into. Is it John the Baptist? Is it Elijah? Is it Elijah coming back? And then in addition, we look at this idea of um, priesthood. So king, prophet, priest, and Jesus functioning as a priest. We'll talk a little bit um, more next, or in two weeks when we talk about atonement and then uh, also when we talk about this idea of a covenant representative. So Leviticus 21, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. The priest who is chief among his brothers, on whose head the anointing oil is poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, shall not let the hair of his head hang loose, nor tear his clothes. He shall not go in to any dead bodies, nor make himself unclean, even for his father or for his mother. He shall not go out of the sanctuary, lest he profane the sanctuary of his God, for the consecration of the anointing oil of his God is on him. I am the Lord." So in this instance, we start to see Jesus' function as priest didn't necessarily line up with the Jewish concept or role of priest. For one thing, Jesus was not born into the priestly line. John the Baptist was born into the priestly line. Jesus is, comes from commoners. But... That's why we get in Hebrews chapter 7, 
the priesthood of Melchizedek. So Hebrews chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Uh, and then skipping ahead. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it to the people received the law, what further need would there be, would have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. And then he goes on uh, to make the connection that Jesus fits within this line. His priestly function fits within the order of um, Melchizedek. So this certainly is not an exhaustive connection of the Old Testament, but it fits um, kind of these three functions, these three offices that Jesus holds, uh, king, prophet, and priest. Questions about Any questions about uh, these Old Testament connections? Um, all right, so let's look at uh, the Gospels, as I kind of mentioned that we were going to. So when we think, uh, ooh, let me do this. When we think of each of the books of the, the, each of the Gospels, each one is functioning with a, a specific audience and concept in mind. So Paul's writings were published before uh, Mark was written. And so there's a, you might think, well, let's look at um, some of Paul's Christology, some Paul's understanding of Christ, because he was published first. Um, but there was a whole oral tradition. And so the reason why we focus so much on the Gospels is because of the firsthand eyewitness interactions that they had with Jesus. So when you think of Mark, Mark's main kind of theme um, is this idea of suffering servant. And when you think of um, Matthew, Matthew's main theme is king of the Jews. And when you think of Luke, Luke's focus when we look at Jesus is this concept of friend of all. And in parentheses, um, really the concept of a new Adam, which 
I say everyone. In essence, the role of Jesus um, kind of transcending uh, both sides of the spectrum. And then John, when you think of uh, John's gospel, really John, his focus is um, word and wisdom, which really fits within this idea of Jesus' position in creation. One commentator says, John's portrayal of Jesus is by far the most human um, of all of the portrayals of Jesus. Because when we look at John's gospel, if you remember, uh, we just finished it this last year, you see these human accounts of Jesus and these very human experiences. Jesus weeping, you know, Jesus' hunger, all of these human examples or really focusing on the humanity of Jesus. So if you look at Mark chapter 2, verses 10 and 28, actually let's look at um, verse 9, so 2, 9. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And then in verse 28, well, 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made uh, for man, not man for the Sabbath, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So Jesus serving his people um, becomes a big theme within uh, the the book of Mark. I have an extended quote for you from um, this. Karkainen is the author of this Uh, Christology. It says, for Mark, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, because he fulfills the destiny of the Son of Man. Were Jesus Jesus not to fulfill this destiny, he would not be God's messianic son. Mark and Christology, then, can be summarized in the terms Messiah, Son of God, the Son of Man. And yet none of these can be understood adequately apart from Mark's narrative. For the Christology is in the story, and through the story we learn to interpret the titles. And so Karkainen gets to this interesting thing that we have to understand when we look at the Gospels. Because we get teaching by Jesus in the Gospels, and we get the Gospel writer's interpretation and accounts of what Jesus is doing. And so we're doing a lot of extrapolating about the connections that exist between Jesus' actions and who Jesus is. In Matthew chapter 1, we see this theme immediately um, about Jesus and his role within the um, Davidic 
kingship. So we get the genealogy of Jesus. Right away, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the uh, deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, okay, to the Messiah, Jesus, 14 generations. And so Matthew starts off his gospel talking about the position of Jesus in relation to David and the importance of Jesus functioning as the Davidic king uh, in the totality of his ministry. Any questions on kind of this super Cliff's Notes um, version kind of thematic um, breakdown of the, the Gospels? All right. So when we... As I mentioned, Paul is a huge, um, does a lot of Christology stuff. And, you know, a lot of those 500 plus references to Christ um, come from Paul. Again, Karkainen says this about Paul's writing. He says, they are scripturally Old Testament based, theologically grounded, pastoral, missional responses to and reflections on issues facing emerging Christian communities in the matrix of Jewish religion and Greco-Roman philosophy, thought forms, and mystery cults. So Paul is writing into this matrix of the Jewish religion, Greco-Roman society, philosophy, and these mystery Hellenistic mystery cults. And so when Paul is writing into these contexts and he's writing these letters and he's trying to get people to understand who Jesus was, he's no longer uh, alive on earth then, and who Jesus is to these people, part of what he is doing is he is framing the understanding of Christ, of Jesus, um, within those contexts that people would understand. So if we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that is in Christ. So you see, I mean, right there, it's like Christ, every other word, uh, because he's trying to get the Corinthians to understand that Jesus had this messianic function. And you know, as Paul writes about according to the flesh and no longer according to the flesh, he's writing into a context and getting people to understand and writing against a heresy that will develop later on 
uh, in this idea that Jesus was never in the flesh. That Jesus didn't actually possess a physical body, um, but he was just here as a spirit. And that's where you point to John's focus on the humanity, the humanness of Jesus, and you put these two together and you say, clearly, uh, the importance of Jesus' humanity uh, was very high in Paul's mind. And that's why in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, really starting in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, again, you know, as Karkainen mentioned, he's writing into a Greco-Roman philosophical form world, and so he uses some language that they're going to connect with. In the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, again, suffering servant of Mark, being born in the likeness of men, uh, emphasis on the, the Adam uh, portion of Luke, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul makes this big case that Jesus, when he became man, um, gave up his position within heaven. And we'll talk about this next week in this um, concept, concept of emptying, self-emptying, and how do we get, how do we work with humanity and divinity in the same um, sentence? So again, let's look at uh, another Paul text, Galatians. So back a few pages, Galatians four four through seven. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and of a son, then an heir through God. So Paul, again, is focusing on key concepts and one of the biggest key concepts about Jesus in Paul's time is the humanity of Jesus. And so he makes it a point again and again and again that Jesus was a living, breathing human being. And in that, if you remember back to Romans chapter 5, Paul also says, you know, through Adam, sin enters the world, and through the new Adam, Christ, sin is taken care of. Again, in the same vein, in the same line of humanity. So you can see how the divinity of Christ can be easily diminished. 
Like if we make this big push uh, for the historical Jesus, is what it's called, and I will say if you um, come across this idea of the historical Jesus, it's not an evangelical pursuit. Like it's not a bunch of followers of Christ, followers of Jesus that want to understand Jesus better. The, the pursuit of the historical Jesus is very much a textual, critical, historical, intellectual pursuit of the actual human being named Jesus. So, if you're like, I was reading this article on the historical Jesus, probably never going to say that, but maybe after tonight you will. And so there was this movement and this push to prove that Jesus actually existed as a human being. And if you've read um, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, it's the same kind of um, vein and concept, is how do we understand the humanity um, of Jesus and also the divinity of Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about next week. But you can't understand who Jesus is without understanding how he fits, obviously, within the text of Scripture. Because we understand who Jesus is, we understand his being through his doing. And so we can look at his teaching, which we will do uh, some looking at his teaching, but there's far more of his doing, how he lived his life, um, that helps us get a better understanding of who he is. Any questions about those uh, Pauline concepts? All right, so what we're going to do now is break up in groups of um, five to seven. Okay, so five to seven. So six would be great. Seven would be okay. Eight? No. Don't be, you know, what we just talked about. So five to seven, and we're going to discuss these um, three questions. Um, I'm going to write these on the board so you don't have to think uh, about them too hard. What do you think of when you think of Jesus? Is there an aspect or title for Jesus that you find more helpful? So we talked about um, some of his titles, but there's obviously many more. Uh, and then the last question, how do you work through your own bias, biases when trying to understand Scripture? So what do you think of when you think of Jesus? Is there an aspect or title for Jesus that you find more helpful, and how do you work through your own biases when trying to understand Scripture? So group up in five to seven people. I said five to seven because if you have three couples, then you have six, but then if you have a few uh, single individuals, then you can get the, the five or the seven, but you can't get the eight. 